So chapter 33, verse 7. Chapter 33, verse 7. Moses took the tent and he pitched it outside the camp. So Moses builds a tent. But this is not the tabernacle. So the thing you must understand is God has forgiven them. They're not going to die. But two things have happened other than them losing the priesthood. They have lost the right to build a tabernacle where God will dwell with them. And they've lost the right for God to go with them. And so God basically says, I'm not going with you. An angel is going to go with in my behalf. I will still honor all my promises to Abraham. I will still bless you. I will still bring you into the nation. But it's all going to be done through a representative, an angel. I'm not going to be there with you anymore. I cannot be with this kind of sin. And because I'm not going with you, you don't get a tabernacle. What's the point of a tabernacle now? It's like building a house with no intention of anybody ever moving in. And so God, so Moses builds a tent, but it's a teeny little one-room tent. And he puts it outside the camp because outside the camp is being cut off from the covenant blessings of God. So God is actually reversing it. Where normally if you're in the camp, you're in the covenant blessings of God. If you're outside the camp, you're outside the covenant. God goes outside the camp. Which means he's basically saying you're all cut off from me and my access. And Moses goes in and it says that Joshua becomes the guardian of the tent. So Joshua has some kind of access that we're not completely clear about. And Moses is able to go into the tent and the glory of God comes down into this little teeny tent called the tent of meeting, which gets really confusing because when they build a tabernacle, they're going to call that the tent of meeting too. But you just got to know where you are in the context of the story. So they build this and it says from every day that people wanted to go and talk to God, they could, but they had to leave the camp and go into the, t- the tent and only one at a time or maybe one family at a time. And what it made it very clear was you had to kind of stand out in front of everybody and it required you to publicly stand up and acknowledge your repentance, acknowledge your allegiance to God and wa- leave the camp and go into the presence of God, but only one at a time because the nation lost the privilege. And this is how they begin to do things. And when they find out about this, they mourn. They mourn because they realize what they've lost. It's like one of those things that's like you didn't accept it when it was there, but now when it's finally gone, you're like, I kind of miss this. And so he pitched outside the camp at a good distance from the camp, and this is the way they interact. So verse 12, Moses said to Yahweh, See, you have been saying to me, Bring the people up but you have not let them know whom you will send with me. But they said, you said, I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way that I may know you and I may continue to find favor in your sight and see the nations is is your people. And Yahweh said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. Now, what is going on here? Moses is basically saying this, like, you promised to go with us. And my goodness, if these people won't follow you when you're right here with us, I'm all by myself. How in the world am I going to do this? How in the world can I actually get these people to um, follow me? So Moses is basically begging God, please go with us. Please go with us. Don't walk away from us. Don't send the angel. Just you go with us. So he's begging him to stay with him. Don't leave me. I cannot do this alone. 
To which Moses, Yahweh, replies and says, I will go with you. Now here's what's interesting. It sounds like in the English that God is saying, okay, I'll go with you. But you need to understand, we don't have a plural you. In the Hebrew, it's a singular you. So God basically says, okay, Moses, I'll grant your request. I will go with you personally, and I'll stay with you, but I won't be with the people. Now, how in the world that works, I don't know. Like how Moses has this big pillar of fire nobody else does. Is it, God's definitely going to do something else with the Spirit of God, maybe like the prophets where they got the Spirit of God, but it's not like they had this giant pillar of fire on top of them. But God is basically saying, I promise that you'll be my anointed one and I'll put my spirit on you or something like that. Not that he said that, but something like that. And I will not abandon you, Moses, but I'm not going with the people. The, the you is singular. And so Moses, you're probably, Moses is like, wait a minute, that's not what I asked for. I mean, that's really cool. And I'm not going to reject that. But that's not exactly what I look. So he goes on. And he says, and Moses said, verse 15, If your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. For how will it be known then that I have found favor in your sight and I in your people? Is it not your by your doing with us so that we will be distinguished and your people from all the people who are on the face of the earth? Now this is key. Moses gets God. So we talked about last week what is going on here with God, Moses interceding. Part of this whole intercession is not just Moses praying on behalf of the people. Part of it is not just Moses asking for God to repent or um, to accept their repentance and to turn away from his anger and wrath. Part of it is also God testing Moses, do you get me? Do you understand who I am? Because remember when just a year ago, Moses was like, what character are you? I'm not going. I can't do this. I'll be with you. I can't do this. I'll be with you. I can't do this. And now a year later, he's like, I get who you are, God. And notice what he says here. This is huge. We are nothing without you, Yahweh. The whole point of us being saved, the whole point of us entering into a covenant is to be different than everybody else in the world. And we can't be different and unique without you. I'm not different and unique by my goth. I'm not different and unique through my hobbies. I'm not different and unique when I wear plaid and then everybody begins to do it. It's not my skills. It's not our actions. It's not our resources. It's not our gifts as a nation that makes us unique and different. It's you. If you don't go with us, we'll look like everybody else in the world and nobody will ever want to be a part of us and your blessings won't happen he gets it that's a powerful confession that the only thing that makes us different and unique is you god and if you don't go with us there's no point we might as well just stay in the wilderness and die and even if you promise to go with me there's no point i might as well just stay in the wilderness and die that's powerful. And to that God says, Yahweh verse 17 says, I will do this thing also that you have requested, for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. And he says, I will go with you, the entire nation. Why? 
not because Moses bent his arm and persuaded him, but Moses confessed a confession of, I get what this is all about. This isn't about us being powerful. This isn't about us getting whatever we want. This isn't about us. This is about us being unique because you're with us. And this is about you being with us so that other people want to be a part of you. And if you don't go with us, we're nothing. Your covenant is nothing. Your blessings are nothing. And to that, God says, Amen. I will go with you. And you have to realize what all this has done. Moses is persistently praying and praying and praying. And he won't give up. And he won't relent. And because of his constant per- per- um, um, can't even think of the word now. Um, persistence and petition. That was the word I was looking at. I was mixing the two words together. His constant petition, he gets Israel completely restored back to the original promises of God, except for the priesthood thing. And so God's basically saying, temple, tabernacle's back on, pillar of fire's back on, me taking you into the nations back on. And what we're going to do after this is we're going to renew the covenant and the covenant's back on. This is a full restoration. That's huge. Because of persistence of Moses. Now, when Jesus comes along and says, your heavenly father is like a woman who goes to her neighbor and keeps pounding on the door in the middle of the night. And finally the neighbor gives him bread just to get her to shut up and go away then how much more will your loving Father give you if you can persistently ask and pray? You should be thinking about this. You should be thinking about this story. Because Israel would have not been... Can you imagine how different the story of the Bible? I mean, it probably would have pretty much ended in the next book with them all dying. Okay? You would not have the rest. What would it look like for Jesus to come from Moses? Is it even possible? I mean, with all things that God is possible, but at the same time, like, I don't know. It would be drastically different, but yet because Moses would not give up and because he got God in his prayer, he's not just praying for stuff that he wants. He actually offers to give up his covenant blessings so the people could have it. That's huge. God, you can abandon me in the wilderness and take them in the promised land, I'm willing to be abandoned on their behalf. Because he gets it. And that's what Christ has called us to. Do you get me? And are you willing to pray without ending with that theology? With that devotion? If you are, there's nothing that your faith cannot accomplish. There's nothing that your faith cannot accomplish. But a lot of times we don't immediately go to God or we think, oh, it's been a week. <laughs> and we either get tired of praying, or we think, oh, he must have answered no. Don't give up. And so Moses gets them fully restored. And so Moses then says, okay, but one more thing. Let me see your glory. Because I'm still kind of all by myself here, and the pillar doesn't seem to be enough, so let me see your glory. In verse 19, Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before your face, and I will proclaim Yahweh by my name before you. I will be gracious to whom I am gracious. I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. But he added, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. 
And Yahweh said, Here is a place by me, and you will station yourself on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock. I will cover you with my hand, and I will pass by. And then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. Like, wow, that's a lot. So he says, I want to see all of your glory. And God's like, you cannot handle that. Nobody can handle that. Nobody can just stand in the raw presence of God. It's going to take the death and resurrection of my son for anybody to get that. You cannot take that. But what I will do is I will give you a little glimpse. Now, God doesn't have a back. God doesn't have a hand, the best that we know. I mean, he's not a body. So this is all metaphorical language. Remember, you're describing an undescribable God who is a spirit with human language. You can't do this. Like, God is a three-leaf clover. <laughs> That's so pathetic. Okay? And so basically, this is the best language he has. Even when he says, I, am, I have a face-to-face relationship with Moses. Well, he doesn't technically have a face. And Moses never sees his face. But it's, it's just a phrase of face-to-face means an intimate, close relational fa- relationship. And so God says, I'm going to put you in this cleft, you're going to hide in this cave, and you're going to peek out through this like crack in the cave. And I'm going to cover it with my hand, and I'll walk by, and I'll show you my back, and then I'll kind of move my hand really quick. Basically, I'm going to turn down the dimmer switch on my glory. You're not, you're go- and God calls us this goodness. God calls us his goodness. We don't really know what that means. Obviously, it's holy. Obviously, it's righteousness. But we don't know exactly what it means. And so he says, you're going to see that. I'll let you see something. Now, that should make you later when we get to Ezekiel. In chapter 1, Ezekiel's got a different way of explaining it. Ezekiel says, behold, I saw a throne towering above me. And on it was the appearance of what looked like a man. And I saw the likeness of the appearance of the glory of Yahweh. So listen, what Ezekiel is saying, he's saying, I didn't get to see Yahweh, I only saw his glory. But I didn't get to see his glory, I only got to see the appearance of his glory. But I didn't get to see that, I only got to see the likeness of the appearance of his glory. And even that blows Ezekiel away and throws him down to the ground in total repentance. Isaiah only gets to see God through a bunch of seraphim that are covering their bodies with wings and stuff. And he only gets to see like the, cur- the, the, the train of his robe. And that makes him fall on the ground and say, I should be damned to hell for now seeing this. And so all these things, they don't get to see fully who God is. And even just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh is enough to floor them. And when Moses sees this, it's going to make his face shine like the sun. And he's going to literally have the glory of God like beaming out of him. That would have been an amazing sight. Okay, It's like, wait a minute, that sun is coming down the mountain. Okay, And so God shows him this. But notice once again, as God walks by, God says, I will punish people to the fourth generation for their sins, but I will forgive them and be merciful to the tenth generation. We already talked about what that meant in the Ten Commandments. But once again, it's the sin of idolatry, and what he sings corporately, I will punish you for a several, couple generations, or a few. But when you repent, I will bless you for thousands of generations. And that's what he's saying. The nation's repenting, Moses repenting on their behalf, 
that are going to get the blessings. That's a powerful ending to the golden calf. They basically, God is up on the mountain telling them, this is, what, this is the house that you're going to build for me so that we can live together. And as he's giving them instructions to build a house so that he can live with Israel, they decide to worship another god. This is like going off and getting all the preparations for a wedding and then you come back and your, your bride-to-be or groom-to-be is already sleeping with somebody else. And the bridegroom or the bridesmaid comes in and repents on their behalf. And you say, okay, I'll forgive you and completely restore everything and act like nothing happened. I'll build the house and we'll get married. That's huge. And then some, because it's God. This is what God is doing with Israel. It's a full restoration because this is the character of God. And now, listen very clearly. The third command is, you shall not take the character of God in vain. Meaning that your life is supposed to reflect God's life. So if this is what he does, imagine what you've been called to with the people in your life. I mean, that's like huge. And that's exactly what Christ is going to get into. And this is the equivalent of Christ dying for you while you were still a sinner and unrepentant. And God says, be holy because I am holy. Be my image and act and live and forgive like I do. And that should affect the way you think about marriage, the way that you think about church, children that you just want to strangle, neighbors that are just like against you, people who are killing you, If you're concentration camps, some people have been in the past. This is what you've been called to. I think I'm specifically Corey Ten Boone and other scenarios like that. This is what we've been called to. But yet it is impossible to do if God is not with you. Because if God is not with you, then you're no different than anybody else in the world. And that's the main point that Exodus is going to end on, is that lesson. So, God says, okay, restore the covenant. But this time, you're carving the stones. (laughs) Okay? You're carving the stones. And so Moses carves the stones, and he comes down the hill, and his face is shining, and knows it says that he put the veil. Now, a lot of people think that he puts the veil over his face because they can't, like, look at him while they're talking to him. And so he speaks, but that's not what it says. It says that he puts the veil on his face after he got done speaking to them and when he goes off. Why? Paul gives you insight in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says that he put the veil on his face when the glory of God began to dim and fade. So the further and further he was away from God, the longer he went. That's actually a better way of saying it. The longer he went from being up on the mountain in the presence of God, the glory would begin to fade. And then you go back to God and it like gets recharged, for lack of a better word. I don't even know how to describe this. And then he comes back down and it begins to fade. And so he would put the veil over his face so that nobody could see the fading. So that they wouldn't begin to think, oh, God's leaving him. And misunderstand it. Now what point is Paul making with this? Paul says that the glory of God faded in Moses because he 
did not have direct access to God. But for us who are in Christ, and God himself and his Son are in us, the glory of God does not fade in us. Why? Because Christ is always in you. And so what Paul is directly saying is, Moses is the greatest prophet that has ever lived. And he got to see the glory of God in a way that nobody got to see it, that it actually physically changed his appearance. But even him, it faded because he did not have Christ. But now that Christ is in you, you have that same glory, and it never fades. You're the new Moses, so to speak. And in fact, he's going to go on and say, and we, don't, we have all these blessings. And it's not based on our obedience. It's based on Christ's obedience. Now here's the thing. That means the glory of God is not just something in you. It's a physical thing too. If Moses' face shines like that, and Daniel's going to say, when we get to heaven, we're going to shine like the sun and the stars. Imagine what Adam and Eve would have looked like in the full presence of God. Now, that's not the reason you become a Christian, so you can glow one day. (laughs) But just know that when God is talking about making you into a new creature, a new man or woman in God, he's talking about a holistic transformation. Every part of you is going to reflect the God. You're physically going to be the image of God. Your character is going to be the image of God. Your attitude is going to be the image of God. Your love is going to be the image of God. Your relationship is... That's the whole point. That's a holistic restoration. And we only get bits and pieces right now because it's the already, not yet. Does this make sense? God then says, start building the tabernacle. 